Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. My guest on today's episode of Mike's Search for Meaning is Anne Vandergeesen. Anne leads a growing coaching business that supports people to reconnect to their personal freedom. With more than six years of corporate advisory experience across two continents behind her, Anne decided to shift gears, retrain, and redirect her financial due diligence and corporate strategy skills toward helping people identify and shift the constraints that hold them back from accessing more of their potential and to generally live well. Her main products are peace, power, and possibility, which are what she believes are the essential ingredients to create one's sense of personal freedom. These products naturally emerge through the reflective process of deep transformational coaching that guides the client toward integration of all of their parts. Anne's clients include founders, entrepreneurs, company directors, project managers, expert consultants, and creatives. Most of her clients are men who are often naturally drawn to the intellectual and practical nature of the work she does. Anne stands firmly as an advocate and ally for men and is inspired to be part of the change that is needed to improve mental health outcomes for men across the West. Born in rural South Australia, Anne has lived in two countries, worked in more than 10 countries, and today serves and connects with growth-minded people across the globe from her home base in Amsterdam, the Netherlands. Additionally, I'll be donating to and raising awareness for the charity or organization of my guest's choice with each episode. This episode, the organization is EPIC, Everyday People Initiating Change. Please join me in donating. Any and all donations make a huge impact. The link is in the show notes. And this conversation with Anne was an absolute delight. Over the past year, her and I have become close friends and we've collaborated on a YouTube and formerly LinkedIn live series called Cultivating Courage. So we have a natural chemistry. And yet, as we name in the beginning of this episode, we actually were very nervous and a little bit apprehensive as we went into the longer form conversation. One of the reasons that we address this and named this is because we think it's important for each of us to show up authentically in our lives. And that really permeates throughout this conversation and in Anne's work. She talks about her journey of proving herself as a woman in the business world and how she really wanted to show it to the business world that she belonged and that she had the stamina to last. But while her experience is as a woman, she has a very soft spot in her heart for men's health. She talks about her father's journey, and her father passed away when Anne was 19 years old. So Anne is deeply committed to men's health and men's mental health. We really dive deep into her holistic approach. She has a grab bag of so many different modalities and interests that form the work that she does, 
One of the things that I really love most about Anne's work is how she supports folks in making the unconscious conscious and helping people see what are the underlying scripts, what are the underlying stories and beliefs that are running your life. How can we make them conscious so that you are aware and intentional with the choices that you are making in your life? I won't keep you any further with the introduction. I'll let Anne take it from here. So with all of that said, settle in, take a deep breath. And enjoy what Anne has for us today. Hey, Anne, welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning. Hey, Mike. Nice to be here with you. <laughs> it feels <laughs> very strange. It feels a little bit awkward to be recording. We've done maybe 20 recordings at this point that were not in a podcast forum. And so I had this expectation that it would just feel business as usual. And, and yet I'm feeling pretty nervous and anxious. So I just wanted to name that in <laughs> the... Yeah, in the in the name of authenticity, something that we're trying to create in this conversation. That before I ask the initial question, I ask. I just want to check in with you and see where you're at. Mm, yeah, I'm. I'm definitely feeling that too. Um, yeah, before I jumped onto this course, you know, wow, I'm actually, I'm actually a little nervous. And it, it's funny because we do get into such a natural flow when we when we join together in conversation. Um, so I, I anticipate it'll come, but yeah, it's a bit of a different energy here on on Mike's podcast. Mm. As a random footnote, the last couple of weeks, I when someone asked me how I'm doing, there's a way in which most of my life, I have probably given a throwaway answer and said, you know, I'm good or whatever else I think the other person wants to hear. I've been given the right boundaries and the right setting. I've actually been authentically checking in with myself and saying how I am. And it's been met with a lot of receptivity and other the folks that I'm connecting with are feeling permission to say what's going on with them and thanking me for authentically checking in. And that's essentially that's what I'm doing here mm. in, in this moment right now is I'm saying how I am without being performative and just diving right into the conversation. So yeah, how, how's that land with you before mm -hmm. we actually get into it? It's, it's quite funny, actually, you should mention this, because um, I had a fresh experience on this too, a, a few months back now. There's a bit of a cultural thing that, I, that I've that i noticed, because when you, when you ask that question in the Netherlands, how is somebody going, they genuinely do give you a, an answer that's more substantive than just like, oh, yeah, I'm good, how about you? It's actually, oh, that was a question, so I respond. Uh, when I was back in Australia a few months ago, hadn't been for two and a half years, so sort of forgot some of the Australianisms. And I would ask somebody how they're going, and sometimes I didn't get an answer. Or they'd ask me how I'm going, and I go to give an answer, but they're already like gone, they're already past me on the street or something. I was like, oh, I forgot. They actually don't want to hear the answer. It's just it's just a standard greeting, like, how you going? How you going, mate? Yeah. And yeah, it's a really, it's a really funny thing. And I, I suspect in the US it's a little bit similar to like, kind of the Aussies it's just it's a little bit of a greeting it's not a genuine well sometimes it is but it's not not usually a genuine like I really want to know how you're doing like share with me but I, I love I love the authenticity of of really just going yeah you know what I'm I'm feeling a little weird today or I'm a little off or you know my energy's not so good but you know I'm I'm here you know I'm I'm soldiering on <laughs> it's 
it, as you said, it really does give permission for the other person to to be real also. It's um really brings down those guards a little. So I, mm. I appreciate that. Well, my nervous system thanks you. And I feel as if I'm arriving more in the moment. And almost every other conversation I've had, I, I just dive right in. And for whatever reason, I felt called to do that here in this moment with you. So the question I always start the interview with, which I know that you know, is what mm -hmm. was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up? <laughs> yeah, I, I did anticipate this question. I, I thought about how how am I going to answer that? Because I actually had two dinner tables. I had one with my mom and one at my dad's house. So my my parents split up when I was fairly young. Well, if I have to choose, I think I'll do that for simplicity's sake. Uh, I'll go with my mom because I spent most of my time there. And our dinner table was really, really important actually growing up. It was the time when our family would really come together and, and connect with each other. We would talk about maybe what we'd done at school that day, how things were going. Uh, it was also a place of, of discipline and learning. We, we had a rule that we had to finish our dinner before we left the table and the plate had to be empty. Sometimes there was a bit of room for bargaining with mum, but we had to make sure that we ate our vegetables, didn't just sort of mow down our meat first and, and leave the rest. So um, it was definitely a, a place of discipline, lots of focus on you know, using the cutlery properly and you know, not switching hands with the fork and not eating like you've got a shovel in your hand. It's, um, it's, it's funny, actually, it's something I'm really, really grateful for, because later in my life, when I started working and got into consultancy and occasionally found myself at, at really, really fancy dinners, eating nice food and drinking nice wine. It was just thinking I was so grateful that mum taught me how to use my cutlery properly because I'd really, I'd feel really out of place if I didn't know how to do that in that sort of context. So yeah, there was, there was a lot that happened around that table, sometimes some arguments, sometimes some some crocodile tears. Uh, but all in all, it was it was a sacred space. So there was there was no negotiating whether or not we would eat dinner at the table. There was no no TV dinners. It was it was table or nothing. Mm. So um, it was a really special special place. And maybe as a little bit of an extension of that, one uh, one really sort of special element for that me uh, for for me personally that my sisters didn't sort of join in on was the preparation of dinner before we would get to the table when my mum was in the kitchen cooking um, most nights I would go and sit in the sit on the kitchen bench sort of on the on the side of the kitchen and just chat to her while she was cooking and that was that was my little one-on-one -on -one time with mum and um, really really special really sacred also that that for me sort of goes together with the whole dining room table experience mm -hmm. that's something that we actually share in common with regard to understanding how to immerse yourself into the fine dining world. My <laughs> my mom found it very important. I, maybe my dad did too, but I remember my mom educated me on where the cutlery goes, where the silverware goes, what a soup spoon was versus the, the entree spoon. And I never, I've never heard someone answer the question in that way. And it, it evoked that memory for me as well. The preparation part, not as much, but I'm curious, how would you describe what you were like as a child? And and what did you, I don't know if you would have had the language for it then, but I, I think given the amount of work that you've done, what were you longing for, yearning for? Oh, as, as a child, 
Well, maybe to start like an adolescent too, but just when I ask that question, I don't know what direction you, your mind goes, but just as you were coming of age, what, what were you Mm -hmm. like and, and what, who did you want to be and all that type of fun stuff? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful question. The version of me that I connect to most quickly is um, quite a small part of me. Every day when I used to get home from school, I I would most of the time not change my clothes, <laughs> even though I was asked to. But in, in my school clothes, I'd go down into the garden and I'd play in the vegetable patch or the strawberry patch and just kind of hang out there. And I, I could entertain myself for hours till it got dark and I had to come up to the house for dinner. Sometimes I wonder now, like, what was I doing out there? But I, I just had this this wonderful ability to just engage myself in in play and whether it was you know, digging holes and making mud pies in the sandpit or pretending that there was little fairies that lived amongst the strawberries and, you know, they were protectors of the strawberries. And, uh, but I, I just spent so much time just out there, just just being really, I think, in in awe of, of life and the little things, um, just in my own, busy in my own imagination. Some some days it would be laying on the trampoline by myself, just looking up at the clouds. But I was I was a real dreamer. Um I had a lot of ideas as well. And sometimes uh, I think it used to be tough for my mum because I was quite chatty. Compare that to at school where I was very, very shy and reserved and didn't really make a lot of friends in, in the first few years of school. Um, I was sort of kept to myself. But I get home and I just you know, have to share all of these ideas with with my mum. I had so much that I wanted to dive into and explore and it was quite, quite curious. I, th- I think over time, as I got sort of further into school, that started shutting down a little, mm. and and it's interesting because just just you asking that question has made me realize that I think now that that curiosity and playfulness is coming out more and more as I uh, really intentionally invite myself back into play and back into mystery and um, the awe of life, the awe of nature. So it's um I, I guess maybe that's why that experience for me as a as a child feels so rich because it's it's almost like I'm revisiting that now mm-hmm. it's reminding me when I, when I was younger I used to play basketball a lot and by myself but I never felt like I was actually by myself a lot of times in solitude I, we're, we're both INFJs we're both introverts I felt most alive when I was playing basketball in solitude and one of the ways that I brought playfulness into that was I would kind of announce the game out loud. I, I would make up scenarios in my head of me making the game winning shot and I would actually announce it out loud because I lived in a quiet suburban area. And I don't know why what you shared evoked this for me, but there was one time that I was doing that and my next door neighbor walked outside and and she said to me, are you, are you talking to yourself? <laughs> and... I was so embarrassed because I too was a very shy kid and I I hadn't put this together, but one of the reasons or maybe one of the reasons that I have lacked that playfulness as much as I've come of age is that uh, it was looked at as a weird quality and uh, like that it was, it would have been made fun of to be announcing a game out loud to myself. So I, mm-hmm. Lately, I've been really trying to connect with the parts of me that want to be the the playful inner child. And I just want to name that because I think for the listener, I, it'll be 
I think we all have parts of ourselves that we were imaginative and we dreamed and and in my experience, a lot of us lose touch with that as we come of age. Putting that aside, getting back to Anne, I would love to hear, you mentioned your career in consultancy. I would love to hear what precipitated that. Why was that the first choice you made? And I won't throw too much. I, I know I have a tendency as a question asker to say a bunch. So let's just start there. And <laughs> why consultancy at first? Mm, well, it wasn't consultancy at first, interestingly. Um, <laughs> I kind of feel like so much of my um, professional career was a little bit on accident. It just it was just kind of following uh, the next thing. So when when I finished school, it's it's funny because I was in financial consultancy, right? So so numbers and I have this very vivid memory from back at school because I I was quite academic across the board, and there came a time where I had to make a decision whether or not I would follow sort of a pure math stream and you know, do all the algebra and the heavy stuff, or or do more in applied mathematics, and I wanted to do what we used to affectionately name dumb maths. <laughs> doing that applied mathematics because I thought it was easier. And even though I was capable, I, I liked to kind of take shortcuts if I needed, if, if I could. So I was having an argument with my maths teacher and I said, I'm never going to work in a career that needs maths. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to do your pure maths. Like I'm just not interested. And then somehow I end up in accounting. <laughs> um, it's, it's quite funny. I think she would really appreciate if I went back to her now and admitted that I was wrong uh, back then as a, as a righteous 15-year-old. No, at, at the end of school, I actually wanted to go into the sciences. I was considering maybe a career in something like geology. Back in Australia, there's quite a lot of mining stuff going on. So I thought that that could be interesting and some some nice career prospects being being out in nature because uh, I grew up in a in a very very beautiful part of Australia a little place called Kangaroo Island which is abundant in in nature and large part of it untouched so I really felt that strong connection to nature and I I love rocks and I always loved looking at the when we go go down to some of the beaches there looking at the cliff faces that had sort of uh, washed away and seeing all the layers of of rock and sediment and I thought geology would be fantastic so yeah then life life kind of unfolds um I had to move from Kangaroo Island to the mainland to go to university so I applied for a bachelor of sciences at university but I had to take a gap year because there was some sort of challenges with with proving my independence to get certain government benefits to support me through university so I had to sort of pr prove my independence to the government by earning a certain amount of money in, in my gap year. So took a year off. Um, and during that year, I, I got a job at a law firm. It was my first job on, on the mainland as a, as a rounds clerk. So essentially loads and loads of photocopying. No, no save the trees there. <laughs> it was unbelievable. And I, I think I got swept up in some kind of weird romance that I felt as I was getting off the train, you know, the really busy train in the morning and, and going through rush hour with all of these powerful women in their suits. And mm. it was something that I hadn't really been exposed to growing up in a country area. Like my The town I grew up in had 1,800 people. It was very, very casual. You know, everyone knows everyone. You just didn't see a woman in a suit. Mm. So my in my first job, I, I was just taken by it and, and really uh, almost consumed. And I thought, 
this this world feels like something that could be interesting for me. So I ended up going back and I shifted my preferences for my study and applied for a Bachelor of Commerce instead, specialising in accounting and finance. And so after my gap year was finished, and I did a few few different things in that year, but when my gap year was finished, I went back to university and did commerce. And it was it was really by accident that I managed to get a job at one of the, the big four sort of international accounting firms. Uh, I didn't even know what the big four was when I actually applied for my my holiday job with them, a bit of a sort of a trial position. And yeah, that's that's how it kind of happened. It, it just was was chance I had a had an you might call it an internship. So I did three weeks work with with EY Ernst and Young back in Australia and they offered me a job at the end of it. Oh, okay. <laughs> so so I did that. Started off in their tax department. And then after one year, they transferred over into the the consultancy, the the transaction advisory services division. So, yeah, I, I feel like that was a little more interesting for me. A tax felt very much like just compliance and not really understanding what the businesses were doing, but transactions was was appealing to me because there was a lot more understanding of what the company was actually doing, the impact it was having in the world, more access to to management and lots of site visits and going seeing going and seeing what these interesting companies were doing. So that was quite a long story, but yeah. <laughs> but that's that's kind of how how I got into consultancy. It wasn't wasn't a straight line. It wasn't particularly intentional. It was an unfolding of different events and just sort of getting getting taken by by what I was seeing in front of me and and deciding to go for it. Mm. I'm already learning so much new about you, and that's part of why this is such a fun forum, the the long-form conversation. I, I had no idea. And there's especially that vivid image of being on the, the train or in New York, it would be the subway where you're surrounded by other people who are in the business world. And I can be, in, I'm very in touch with how alluring that looks, especially for someone who grew up in a small town and then is thrust into a big city that it certainly makes a whole lot of sense that you've named that it wasn't very intentional, but I'm actually hearing that while the choices that you made in your career, it wasn't like you said, I want to be an accountant. You saw someone who was living a life that was alluring to you and you said, okay, I want some of that. And and you started to follow that call. So in a way, it was intentional from my vantage point. And from here, I would love to hear, mm-hmm. I want to obviously spend the bulk of the conversation talking about what you do now. When did you start to realize consultancy wasn't necessarily the right fit for you? And and what, what started to bring you towards the path of being a coach? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of a, it's, it's half one to answer because... I feel like a lot of the energy with which I came into that work was trying to prove something. So coming from a split household and being raised by my mom, one of the things that she felt was really, really important to me and sort of had on repeat was to become financially independent, to be a strong and, and independent woman. And so in in my head, I, I really took that on and I, I think there's a lot of validity in that. Right. You know, having having responsibility for yourself and making sure you can care for yourself. Great. But the way I sort of metabolized that in in my psyche was that I I had to sort of force myself into things that I didn't necessarily want to do. And I, I got this job 
with EY and everyone said, oh, that's wonderful, great, you know, top tier firm, you know, you'll be set for life, your your career is sorted. I thought, oh, great, you know, I'm being that strong, independent woman. And when I actually made the application to transfer from, from tax into the transactions team, uh, one of the partners in the tax team actually said that he didn't think that I had the stamina to cope in transactions. It's it's a team that required a lot more hours. It's a little bit more cutthroat. I mean, we're working in mergers and acquisitions. It's it is a is it a tough game? And as soon as I I heard that, I heard it sort of the second third hand perhaps. I thought, well, I'll show you. <laughs> uh-huh. Of course, I have the stamina. Like I I can do this. No worries. And and so I just put my head down and and went into it. Yeah, it's to me like the just the idea of going into something else that I like liked more would not have occurred as I was fully focused on no I've got to I've got to prove him wrong because of course I can do it I'm a strong and independent woman and I'm I'm smart I got here <laughs> so so that's what I did and I managed to sort of catch up because there was a little bit of a back step I had to take because I transferred divisions there's a little bit of a back step I had to take so I made sure I caught up to where the rest of my peers were that that came in in my year and just I just worked my butt off and and it was really tough did lots of flying interstate. I was based in Adelaide and flew quite a bit back back and forth to both Sydney and Melbourne. So red eye flights on a Monday morning, getting up at 4am to catch the first flight. And I would be back home at 10, 11 o'clock on a Friday night. And that was sort of my my life for a pretty long time. I, so I worked for EY for three years in Australia. And I would say probably a, a year all up of that was this back and forth commuting and so it was pretty tough. It's pretty hard to have a life around that because a lot of my weekend was, you know, doing washing and kind of recovering, maybe seeing one friend or something, and then packing and, and getting ready for the next week. So that was when it sort of occurred to me, oh, maybe, maybe while I'm at a firm like this, because maybe this isn't forever, maybe, maybe this is a bit too much. Uh, so why don't I use the opportunity to travel internationally? And that's what eventually led for me transferring from the Adelaide office over to Amsterdam in the Netherlands, where, where I still am now. And I chose the Netherlands largely because of work-life balance. There was every every blog I read on the internet said, oh, you know, the Dutch are great at work-life, work-life balance. And I thought, oh, excellent. I, I still get to work my, you know, strong, independent woman job. And I, I know that my salary is going to be taken care of all good. They'll pay for my transfer. And I arrived here and it turns out that that whole work-life balance thing doesn't apply when you're talking about M&A in the Netherlands. So, <laughs> damn. <laughs> so I kind of lucked out there, but I, I'd done my, uh, I'd signed up for my two years and I am a woman of my word. So I thought I'm, I'm going to do my two years and just, just see how it goes. Um, really, really tough two years really kind of stretched me Um really revealed a lot of the places where I wasn't free internally. And that, that's where things really started to bubble up for me. And I thought, what is it that makes this hard for me? But there are other women who are successful in, in this job, other people in general, that are able to say no, that are able to, to deal with the stress, that are able to switch off at the end of the day, that are able to submit what I would have said are subpar deliverables. Why is that okay for them, but not okay for me? So I started asking these questions, eventually transferred to another firm uh, here in the Netherlands uh, where I was sort of guaranteed a little bit more space. 
really made that sort of a condition of my new employment that I was going to work less hours. And having this space just allowed for more to bubble up inside of me to realise, yeah, it's it's not so much how much I'm doing and the, the time, the hours that I'm spending here. It's actually that this just doesn't feel like the job that I should be doing. And I, I was actually working with a coach for a little while at the time, I'm still in contact with her. She's one of my, my guardian angels. And she helped me to sort of map out like what's actually important to me. And she got me to do this interesting exercise that was really kind of abstract, but she just said, okay, if you could really dream up anything, like what, what would you be paid for? And what, what would you be doing? And I, I don't even know where this came from inside of me, but I said, people would be paying for my time and what I would be sharing with them. Like what would I be offering them is, is empathy. Mm. And it was a pretty weird thing to say, I think, for somebody who was working in consultancy and, yeah, they, I, they, that was a paradigm that I was living in, that kind of very structured kind of environment. So just to to even come up with that concept, it's about empathy and it's about giving my time. It, I, I couldn't move beyond that because I just thought it's it's all too intangible, but but these are the things that feel important to me. As I just, I loved connecting with people. The things about my job I did really did love was meeting management teams, was um, having conversations with CEOs, was the the interesting conversations you have with your colleagues at 11 p.m. on a Tuesday night when you're when you're there working on a deadline. I I loved my mentoring roles within within the companies I worked for. It it was always exciting for me to to support other sort of more junior staff members going through performance reviews and these kind of things. I I felt a sense that that lit me up in some way. So I, I knew it was about connecting, about people, about empathy. And I thought if I could just get paid just to be me <laughs> and and show up for people, that would be really cool. So that was sort of the the opening of the portal of, of possibilities into this world. And it was a series of, of events that sort of unfolded after that. I ended up doing, it was also very crazy at the time, but doing a, a training in hypnotherapy. That was the first sort of formal thing that I studied I'm working with a few people there. One of my first clients, actually, she'd been in therapy for about five years um, with some a, a pretty challenging um, history to deal with, sort of abuse or some really tough things that she dealt with in, in her life. And after we did one hypnotherapy session together, she said to me, this has been more effective than, than five years in therapy, just one hypnotherapy session with you. It was a long, hard session. But still, I thought, wow, how is that possible? And I was still working full time at the moment. And I thought, I, I, I can't not do this. I can't not pursue this. If I can help somebody in that way, and it, it was an unpaid assignment. It was just, oh, hey, I've got this tool. Are you interested? Yeah, okay. No, it was, it was just something so casual. And I thought, if, if what I can do can support somebody like that, then I just have to do it. I really saw it as me not having a choice. So I ended up doing something really, really crazy. And and just, it was, I think it was about three months later, I just, I just quit my job. I had no plan. <laughs> I I had no, I hadn't even looked at my financials. I just had, you know, a bit of a cushion in my bank account. I thought I've I've just got to find a way to make it work. Mm-hmm. Um so that so that's what I did. I just plunged into the the abyss, which I wouldn't necessarily <laughs> recommend, but it was obviously what I needed to do in, in my path. And it's 
a lot of sort of stepping stones I've taken since then to sort of really get into coaching as such. There's a, a lot of details there that I don't think are particularly interesting, but really sort of dipping in and out, I guess. And eventually it sort of came to me that, that coaching was the thing, a, a, a relationship that's a little bit more longer term, a little bit more intimate, but still really kind of challenging the bounds of what is possible for a human being in a, in a fairly short amount of time. So they're really catalyzing this, this transformation, like, like what I first experienced in that, in that hypnotherapy session. There's so much in here. And, and I, over the course of your answer that I probably had no less than five questions bubble up for areas that would be interesting to explore. But the one that feels most alive for me is, well, I, I have a, a thought and we'll see where, where the question emerges. You mentioned at multiple points in your response just now that things were bubbling up in you, that term bubbling mm -hmm. up. And eventually there was, I don't know if these were the words that you used, but there was a call and a knowing of this is what I'm meant to do. I'm meant to serve my medicine. I'm meant to give people the, the empathy and the time for them to be able to process who they are in the way that I've been able to process who I am. And I'm finding myself curious, what did that inner knowing look like? Or if you wouldn't call it inner knowing, what was happening within you? If we zoom in a little more, what was happening within you when you made that choice to like, I'm, I'm hearing with a hypnotherapy session, there's something powerful that happens there that you you're probably hanging on to saying, like, that was that was really me in my power. That was me really making the difference, leaving the imprint I want to leave. What did it look like within you to make that decision without really knowing how it was going to work out and just trusting that it would? Mm, mm. Yeah, beautiful question. And I think so much of it for me was kind of intangible in a way. It was it was really something deeper, like a knowing, because some of those days there I had sort of towards the end of my finance career, they, they were really, really quite dark, really quite tough. And I I really just felt like this this can't be it. This this can't be what life is about. And working with that first coach uh, that I worked with, and she kind of, she found me and I'm so, so blessed that she did. I guess we had some sort of soul contract to fulfill, but she found me and gave me a tiny little spoonful of this, this kind of possibility, this idea that life could be so much different. And so I guess that tension between I'm really suffering a lot doing what I'm doing and forcing myself to do something that just doesn't feel good for me like yes I can do it and and I did it very well I was successful very very quickly in my job so it wasn't it wasn't about my capacity but it just drained so much of my my life force and then to have this this idea this thing that kind of showed up that said actually there is another way I don't know that how but there is another way and and I guess there was a certain amount of desperation in me that just wanted to grasp onto that and uh, so I, I'd, I'd love to tell the story that it was, you know, all, all inspired and beautiful and, oh, yeah, you know, just emerging, but it, but it really wasn't. 
it was it was super tough. It was it was running away from pain more so than moving away from pleasure. So maybe maybe that 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 boss all those years ago was right. Maybe I didn't have the stamina for it. <laughs> but that's that's kind of funny, I think, in its own right. But um sometimes we don't know ourselves so well. <laughs> yeah, it, it really was a deeper knowing that there had to be something different and that, that there had to be another way for me. Um yeah, and just surrendering without necessarily knowing the how. I think, you know, even with the decision I took to move from Australia to the Netherlands, I think if I'd really thought through it and really thought what the practical applications were, I would never have done it. And the same with quitting my job. If I had got out that Excel spreadsheet and done my budget and realised, you know, how many clients I would have to have doing this particular thing to make it work and all of the marketing and stuff that would have to go behind that and the whole kind of business model, I would have gone, uh, no, too hard. So I think that's a bit my thing, just kind of jump in and, and learn how to swim later. And and I do I do tend to act that way. I, I go go off something that that is deeper and call it intuition, instinct, desperation, if you like, mm-hmm. <laughs> in, in some situations. But it's yeah, I I think I think intuition is 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 the right word for it. And it's not always clear, but yeah, there's there's the directionality in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of times pain is the thing that invites us into our knowing. Yeah, there's a, this, this isn't working for me. I don't know what the next thing is, but I know that this can't be it. There's, there's something more out there is the phrase that comes up for me a lot. There's, there's something more, there's a better way. And it sounds like in your experience with your coach, among other things, you started to, there was this combination of this is, I can't do this for too much longer. And there is another way. I don't know how it's going to work out, but there is another way. And Mm -hmm. just getting, sometimes that little taste is all we need because it, then it lives within us. We, we know that it is possible. And that's one of the biggest powers of the human spirit. And in my estimation is that we are able to move towards something without having any clue how it's going to work out. But we do see that it's possible in this person's life. Why not me? So I'm, I'm hearing a lot of that in your story. I also want to rewind a little bit, or maybe it's not rewind, but piece together the different influences on your work. You've mm-hmm. spoken a lot about how your mom has shaped discipline in you. And the, uh, there was a bit about ritual and in, in that you were coming together for dinner all the time. I know that your dad has had a big influence on you as well. And in whatever way you feel called to share, I would love to hear the import of your your relationship with your dad in your work today and, and why you have decided to focus your efforts on working with men. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, thank, thank you for bringing that in. And, and I think just to kind of add a little bit of richness to the story of the pain of the consulting as well, yeah. One of the things that really scared me when I was kind of in in the in the depths of it, and go back to add context to the audience in a moment. But one of the things that really really scared me was I, I used to come home like very late structurally, and I I would just look so forlorn, like the energy, the all of the energy that I had was was just gone, and I I would just look at my my face in the mirror when I would get home. And I would see my dad and I would see 
how I just had nothing left to give. And it, it really scared the shit out of me, to be quite honest. So my, my dad died when I was 19 and he died of cancer. And he was also a workaholic. He, he had no idea where, where to draw the line, where to stop. And, and so when I saw that coming out in myself, that was also very, very scary. And a lot of things I had to work through personally to, to learn how to actually detach myself and my self-image, my identity from, from my work so that I could put in place some healthy boundaries. Because I thought if I have children one day, I don't want to say, I don't want to say goodbye to them when they're 19 and have to explain to them why it is that my body can no longer keep up. So that's, that's just not a, not, I'm not going to allow that to happen. So he was, he was the big influence there in, in terms of, it was almost like his archetype showing up in me. And I, I just decided, no, no, that's, that's not how we're going to do it. One thing to decide, another thing to actually put it into practice, you know, as, as you know, as a fellow student of the work, but it was, it was very much like something has to change. So just, just to go back to add a little context about my dad. So my parents split up when I was 18 months old. So I don't really have any memories of them being together. I have a few memories of, of my parents arguing and certain things would come up, but for the most part, they were sort of two separate entities to me. I was either at my mum's house, my mum or my dad's house with my dad. There was no crossover. There was no, you know, shared Christmases or anything like that. So yeah, every Christmas, every birthday, it was deciding, okay, whose house would we would we be at? Where would it be split? Would it be one, one year, one the next? So it was always kind of a discussion. But I didn't spend a lot of time with my dad. But when I did, it was it was quite often almost like I was sort of a, an appendage uh, that had to be sort of brought around. Uh, I've got two older sisters as well. They're four and five and a half years older than me, respectively. So they were a little bit more independent than I was. But I, most of my memories of dad are actually around his work. So he was a, a local airport manager. He also used to clean the airport. He used to be there for every flight that came in and out. And the last flight of the day was 8 p.m., yeah, he, he did everything to keep the place going. He managed the tea and coffee station, the, the public phone. You know, I've got a, a lot of memories of helping him count all of the coins out of the out of the phone back in the days before people had mobiles and the phone had a cord and you put your actual money in it. <laughs> for, for our younger listeners, maybe they don't know don't know about that. But, <laughs> but yeah, he, he did everything to keep that airport running. The only thing he didn't do was fly the planes pretty much. Um, you know, 5.30 in the morning, he would he would head out and he would do a, a drive up and down of the runway to make sure there was no sticks um, and chase all of the, funny thing, chase all of the kangaroos and wallabies off of the runway as well for the, the first planes to fly in. This was before they had a wildlife fence up. <laughs> so those are the things I really remember doing with dad. It was all sort of around his his work, but I don't have, I don't have any memories really of him doing anything for himself. Um, there was there was one moment where in the day generally where he would go and 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 get a cup of coffee or or a, um, he used to love iced coffee or a chocolate milk or something like that in summer uh, at the local cafe and just sort of do the rounds and say hello to the locals. But beyond that, there was never anything that he really seemed to do for for himself. He he tried to make life a little bit fun for us kids. You know, the, given the circumstances, we were challenging. 
he did take us to the mainland living on an island is not so much to do so every now and then uh, he would take us up to the mainland where we'd, we'd visit his parents as well and you would see it was like there was something in him that was trying to kind of loosen up and trying to have a bit of fun but it always sort of came back to this sort of stiffness and and duty and showing up to to his responsibilities he it would always wear an iron shirt and and proper shoes that he'd, he'd polished and you know pants with a crease up the front it was it was very very proper a tie very very proper in how he presented himself to the world and it was really interesting for me as a as a kid and knowing that kids are very good at perceiving things i always felt a lot of like big energy from my dad so even though he came across as this lovely you know mr nice guy there was this there was a combination of things and i, I think you know i've touched on this this a little little bit before but it was a combination for me of of some sort of sense of anger and frustration with the world and at the same time having a lot of a lot of love that kind of had nowhere to go. Mm. It was just this sense of just this stuckness of these these big energies. So that's that's sort of how I remember experiencing my dad. Really, a man of duty, a man that's got a lot kind of going on, but you're just guessing that it's going on because it's it's he's not expressing it a lot. And sometimes it would seep out a, a, a bit. Sometimes he would raise his voice and um, and and lose his temper and. That, that wasn't too much fun either but yeah I never really felt like I got to got to know dad um never really got to ex- experience him at a, at a deeper level it was almost like it was if he started letting any of that out it would be sort of too much mm-hmm. um I'm noticing I'm not so good at the shorter answers today but <laughs> it's it more than welcome man and I I love that you are giving such rich, in-depth answers, and they're they're very vivid and important in my estimation. They're important mm-hmm. for for men to hear, for people to hear, and just to get your your story is so. I don't know if evocative is the word, but it it's visceral in in many ways, and and very relatable, and mm. uh, so. Don't you dare apologize for the long answers. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate the permission. <laughs> yeah. No, so it was um, like in, in all honesty, it was tough for me to be around my dad as a kid because there was a lot of this guessing of how does dad feel? Is this a day where he's going to bubble over or is it okay? Like, can we can we muck up a bit? Can we push the boundaries or, you know, is there going to be is there going to be some consequence of that? And sometimes there was, sometimes there wasn't, but there was always this little bit of being on edge. So as I got a little bit older, I, I sort of started not wanting to go and spend time with him on on his weekends. I, I just, I didn't really think much of that as as a kid. It was just like, oh, it just, it's just not so nice. You know, it doesn't cook as well as mom and you know, <laughs> more stress. But then uh, when I was 12, my dad started having some health issues and initially we thought it was irritable bowel syndrome, but it turns out after a little bit more testing that he had cancer. And I remember very vividly the moment that my mum told me about it because my dad, who was on the mainland at the having all his tests done with the specialists in the, in the bigger hospitals there, and he'd phoned my mum and, and so mum broke the news to me. And I I just broke down in, in that moment. And it's been something that's come up a lot for me in like doing the work later in life as well. 
but I said, I said to mum, this is all my fault. It's all my fault because I, I rejected him. Like I didn't want to go and see him and now he's going to die and, it, and it's my fault. And it's really interesting to look back at that as an adult, how a 12-year-old can so, like with such passion and intensity and no doubt about it, believe that it was her fault that her father had cancer. And like the audacity, you know, that I had that much power to to make that happen. But I, I just remember that that moment so vividly. And and of course my mum says, No, of, of course it's not your fault. You know, you you couldn't make this happen. You know, it's you, you can't take responsibility. But I, I didn't believe that. I thought I've done I've done this to dad. So um yeah, it was a it was a pretty tough thing to to digest, but it, it ended up that he he didn't die immediately. He kind of went in and out of being sick. I think it was four times, twice with bowel cancer, and then it moved to his liver. And after that, it sort of spread right around his body. So uh, it was between the ages of twelve and nineteen for me. Uh, it was my first year of university when he eventually passed away. So he was only only sixty one as well. So he he wasn't wasn't particularly old. But essentially, as soon as that sickness sort of came into his body, it it only amplified what was going on for him. It seemed to it seemed to put an additional pressure on the the anger, on this love that had nowhere to go, on his frustrations with his life and what he had or had not achieved within that the the failures that he perceived, whether that's the failure of you know being a good husband, a good father a good son, you know, all, all these things seemed to compound on him. It made, made him very reactive to life. So the, the way I kind of look at it now with my adult eyes looking back is it really, he, he, he did start dying from, from when I was 12, I think, maybe, maybe before that even. But it, the relationship didn't get any richer over those years. It only just got more complicated and and when I reflect on that, I feel I feel very sad because it, I think it's such a wasted opportunity. As I said, there was so much love there that he had to give. So much, and he was a very very intelligent, very talented, very sort of community minded guy. And there was so much that could have come of his life, but it didn't. And I find that's the really interesting thing about cancer is it seems to it seems to invite people into a deeper kind of journey, a deeper exploration, and. All of the cancer survivors that I've met, at least, have changed their lives in a in a very fundamental way. They've, they've really gone, okay, something needs to shift. And for some reason, it wasn't able to trigger that in my dad. I, I saw him trying for it, but in, in the end, he, he wasn't able to shift his life, shift his circumstances in a way that would promote health. He, he did keep working on and off over those years, and it was the same, it was with the same mentality. It was work comes first, I'm, I'm showing up there and, and I'm also trying to be everything to everyone else around that. But I, again, it's just this, this theme of him never putting himself first. Um, and, and others may have different beliefs, but my, my personal belief is that was part of this illness taking him. It was, it was really his inability to care for himself and just giving, giving too much from, from an empty cup and eventually he, his body just couldn't do it anymore. And, and I think that's, that's the greatest tragedy uh, for me looking at my dad's life is that he, he didn't believe that he was worthy of that care to actually do something different, to, to put a stake in the ground and go, you know what, I am important. Um, 
And it's an interesting one because I feel like my relationship with my dad has has grown over the years. He's uh, been gone 12, 12 years now. And, and I feel like in that time, I've really come to understand him differently and, and having gone through my own sort of journey and ups and downs as well, I can see how it must have been such a, such a difficult journey to contemplate, to face for him. Um, and I feel like sort of in a way, me looking at the things that he never got to look at has, has been an opportunity for us to kind of heal together. And so whatever kind of metaphysical beliefs people hold, but but for me it feels it feels in a way like it's a shared journey. Because as I overcome my own stuff, it's like I don't have to pass that on now. Like it's it it stops and and he gets to let go of that too. Well, and thank you for the tender, raw, honest, real share there. It paints more than an obvious picture around why men's health and mental health are important to you. And I'm also so deeply touched by how you are willing to, your, your relationship with your father has evolved since his, he's not on the planet anymore. There's, there's still a way in which you are continuing to have a relationship with him and that really resonates with me and yeah i just want to take a moment and pause there's a lot there's a lot that's being stirred up in me i'm struck by how distance a lot of times can create compassion even in micro moments if we're in an argument with our spouse or friend, just taking a, a 10 minute walk or an hour walk. And it sounds like you have developed an immense amount of compassion for where, where your father was in, in his life while he was on this planet. And there's also a grief for what you weren't able to have. And I'm sure that serves you immensely as a coach and as a facilitator. And it's or while I already named this, it's so obvious why men's health and mental health are so important to you. I, I would love to hear you speak more to how you are supportive of your clients, how you help men tap into their inner world in a way that for them, if it's the love that they feel that's that feels too big to be conveyed or the anger, how, how do you support men to tap into that? and to express themselves in a way that's healthy. And so they're not repressing it. And it's not just a, a felt sense. It's, it's actually a way of being and living. Mm, mm. Yeah, it's, it's a challenging question to answer, because it, it always has to start in the in the context of, of where the, the person in front of me is at. And they're never going to come to me and 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 say I've got so much love in my heart, but nobody will receive it, right? And they're never going to come and be like, I'm just so angry with the world, I'm I'm so frustrated, and I don't know what to do with that. Those those are not the things that people come with. It's 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 generally more like, you know, I'm noticing that I'm feeling quite stressed, and it's a little bit harder to deal with than it used to be, or like it's starting to affect my performance, or my relationships are feeling a bit tough and a bit tender um it's it's normally something 
really symptomatic on, on the outside world that makes people go, oh, okay, I should do something about it. And I, what I noticed, because I, I have worked with, with men and, and women in my, in my coaching business as well, what I notice is that men wait, on average, wait for it to get a lot worse before they'll be like, uh, yeah, maybe I, maybe I don't have it under control. And I, I think a large part of that is a symptom of the society that we live in, in this, as much as there's this, you know, beautiful female empowerment movement going on. I, I think for a large part, the, that sense of responsibility and needing to be the provider falls on the, the men, the male in a, a heterosexual relationship. So I think that's, that's still very much alive for the kind of the masculine uh, collective this this sense of of needing to show up in a certain way and have everything arranged and you know follow this certain set of steps through life you know go get the education get the good job get married have kids keep working okay eventually get to retirement age and you know that's it you know then, then we enjoy retirement and quite often it's like just stepping onto a train uh, and not really not really challenging where that's going, not going, oh, hang on, is this actually something that I really want to be doing? Because it's it's more role fulfillment than it is personal fulfillment, you might say. So some it's it's generally, as I said, it's something that hap- that's going on in the in the outside world that's challenging a little bit that role identity. It might go, okay, well I identify myself as a as a high performer and I excel in what I do, but now my results aren't so good. Like what's going on? And so that's that's where we start. We start from whatever the the thing is in the outside world that's presenting. And almost always what you find is it comes back to these these deeper challenges, these these other really, really tender places. Like as as I said, like I do have a lot of love to give. And what I'm finding is I just don't feel safe to express it. Like it's it's not a manly thing or something like that you know it's if I care too much then it's kind of compromising my whole identity as as the person that I show up to life as um it might be yeah I have got a lot of anger and frustration but I've positioned myself as Mr nice guy so actually I can't set healthy boundaries I don't I don't know how to have a conversation with my ex-wife and and tell her that I'm no longer willing to pay extra maintenance I I don't know how to, this is an interesting one that comes up a lot as well. I, I don't know how to reconcile the fact that I don't actually enjoy spending time with my kids. Mm. And I feel like I'm a bad father and a bad person because it's hard for me to be with my kids. It's it's all these, these very tender and precious things that are sort of underneath. But as I said, it really has to start with something in the outside world that's a little bit more socially acceptable to kind of ask for help on. So it's it's such a beautiful process to watch because it's because it's that's the sort of nature of it. it starts from something that's really kind of surface level on the on the macro, and then when we get to the heart of it, it is something that's really beautiful and really tender. And when when men reconnect to that. It's it is so so beautiful. It's it's like everything in their world gets to shift from that place. Like ev- everything that they're generating, that they're working on, starts to come from a different place. And what they find, they're no longer questioning their ability to connect to their children because they they're learning how to be present and just 
realize that there's nothing that they have to do. Their kids are just going to love them because it's just the nature of kids. And as long as they're present and kind of open and available for whatever's coming, then that then there's not going to be any tension there anymore. There's no performance in that area. And so it's all it's all these really wonderful things that that start to evolve. And it's generally the things that are different to what the initial like thing is that they come in with. Mm-hmm. So I, I just find it really, really beautiful work because there's so much contrast in it. Like this, all these powerful sort of masculine expectations that are sh- show up in the in the world in this way and adopt this structure and be successful and you know be financially sorted. Uh, and then there's this tenderness that's really just so 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 beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've come such a long way societally, and there is still much room to grow. And in my experience, and it sounds like in yours as well, men feel the same exact things that women feel. And there's just as much love and tenderness and and rawness and vulnerability there. And and uh, and a not knowing, right? And uncertainty mm-hmm. that I think men are challenged to come across a certain way. And within other groups of men are feel that they have to show up with certainty and it's not safe to not know. And uh, there's a certain bravado that might be expected. And I really do believe that at all of our cores, at all of our essences, humans, men certainly included, are compassionate, loving, want to be seen, want to be heard. And we're complex mm-hmm nice guy archetypes have lots of anger and lots of things that are quote unquote unreasonable that might need to be boundaries that are set for them. And I I just, I'm in awe. One of the reasons I'm so drawn to the work that you and I both do is that I am in awe of what's possible when human beings are in touch with their true essence and and their selves. Mm and what's possible collectively when when all of us are doing inner work and cultivating that self-awareness and giving ourselves the permission to be who we really are there's a there's a way that that cascades into so many other areas it it helps other people feel permission to be themselves in the same way that we started this conversation right we both checked in said I'm a little nervous I'm very mm-hmm. anxious about what might unfold here that allowed both of us to feel safer. And I imagine it's in service of the folks that are listening too. And that just ripples out further and further. And it's a big part of what you are supporting men in doing. I'm finding myself curious, mm-hmm. Anne, what are some of the big influences on your work? And not mm-hmm. and I when I ask that, it's not just, it, it doesn't have to be people in your life. It could be I know that you pull from one of the things I most admire about your work is that you pull from so many different things. You already named hypnotherapy. I know that you can speak pretty eloquently to neuroscience. You are pretty in touch with emotions, masculine and feminine energy, mythology. There's so many threads that you're able to pull on. And I would love to hear whatever feels most alive for you. What are what are some of the influences of the work that you do? Mm-hmm. I, I love that question because 
it speaks to so much of the frustration of my work as well. <laughs> <laughs> I I do pull from it. anything I can get my hands on. I I I, I just adore this work uh, through and through. And I I guess what I bring to the table as a coach is I'm able to meet people in different realms. Like I I can be really super uber spiritual if if I need to. I I I can talk in those terms, or it can be really kind of you know channel my inner due diligence professional and I can be really kind of structured and and specific and speak to like you said some of these neuroscience concepts and 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 I love love to have that range because I'm I'm just meet people where they are at and I find that there's generally a natural kind of shift that happens more toward the spiritual kind of realms it just it seems to emerge naturally maybe that's something that I'm kind of seeding along the way maybe it's a little bit of conditioning but it seems to be really, really helpful for people. So the hypnotherapy was a, a great foundation because it, it it gave me a good sort of framework for understanding the mind and the the nature of it. You know, the the conscious being the five percent and the subconscious being the ninety five percent, and how it all works in terms of the programming and our exposure. And I layer on that the yeah other other things. I mean, even the research of around epigenetics and that some of our psychological challenges are actually inherited. Those kind of things I think are also relevant in this work and understanding that sometimes the battles that we're fighting actually belong to generations before us. And that in and of itself can be really profound for people who feel like they're, they don't know, they're fighting something, but they don't know what it is. There can be a whole amount of relief in realizing that it, it, it could be because there is nothing that's theirs to fight. Yeah, I I love I love the spiritual stuff, but sometimes it can get a little bit too off the ground for me. So I I do like to sort of bring it back and bring it into real concepts. You know, like there's a a, a wonderful body of research out there now around um, being out in nature, for instance, and the effect of grounding, and what that's really doing for the the electrical flows in our body because we are energetic beings, right? So. All of these things I think are really interesting. And lately, I would say in the last sort of six to 12 months, what's been super fascinating for me is dipping my my hands a little bit into the mythology world and really understanding the role that stories and narratives have. Also loving the work of Albert Camus, who was a French philosopher, super interesting. He talks about this idea that life is kind of absurd and you know, we can we can try and make sense of things, but there's just always going to be these weird and unexplainable things in our lives, and our ability to kind of just accept the fact that there's going to be there's going to be ambiguity, there's going to be competing thoughts and ideas and concepts, and there's there's always going to be yeah these sort of challenges that we we can't get to the bottom of, and finding peace with the the not knowing is is really really powerful. Uh, so the, there is a there is a lot that I draw from. I find it I find it hard to kind of narrow it down to something. It does does sort of evolve and go through seasons. I'm definitely in the seasons of stories, but I, I think there's just so much richness in life. I guess I guess we're a little bit spoiled because, you know, and I, I think probably you have this hummingbird tendency as well, being a fellow INFJ. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we're a little bit spoiled that there's so much out there that we can tap into and it is the content of life that informs life coaching and so it it makes a lot of sense i think to to pull from different areas Mm. 
Well, this wasn't explicitly mentioned in your response, but I'm wondering if you could talk about strengths and shadows as it pertains to the work that you do, because I do share the same quality as you, where there's so many things out there that are super fascinating to me. And I pull on all of them in my work. And at times I really lament that about myself and and make up the mm-hmm. story that it's really holding me back. And that might not be the true essence of strengths and shadows, but I, I know that you can speak really well to it. And I would love to hear you elaborate on it. Yeah, yeah. It's one of my favorite things. I like to talk about the idea of the genius in in whatever sense. Um, you can put different different words around it. But it's, it's this sort of ultimate strength that we all have. And it's not always talked about, but I, I like to put next to that, okay, well, whatever your genius is, you've got to make sure that you know it's shadow because its shadow is absolutely going to show up. So this, this information collection kind of thing as, a, as an example, I think is a beautiful one because it's like, okay, there is this interest in so many different things, but then you can get lost in it. You can you can go down the rabbit hole and kind of forget forget where the surface is and come out three days later. Like, what did I do? <laughs> that happens to me quite regularly. Not not three days straight anymore, but sometimes I can get a little bit lost in in these things, especially if I'm engaged in the creative process, whether it's writing a, a longer form article or or working on the copy for my website. I can I can want to just draw from too many things and and get lost. So, yeah, I think that's a that's a good one. I, another one that a lot of people might relate to is empathy, and I think there's a there's a lot of stuff out there at the moment saying, oh, you know, empathy is this core skill that you've got to develop, and it's so important in in business. And if you're a high empathy person, you're you're super super valuable. Okay, yeah, y- yes, and there's also a shadow to that. There's there's also this capacity to feel into other people's stuff and think that you really know what's going on and make your own stories and kind of adjust your behavior based on what you think is going on because you're an empath, you're so powerful, so you know. Um, and I think sometimes we, we're a little bit too presumptuous with, with our empathy. Oh, I should bring that back to myself. I am sometimes a little bit too presumptuous yeah. with my empathy and other, others may recognize that as well. And, and I think there's, there's always there's always a, a caution with, I think, with anything that you look at that's either set out as something that's really good. I, I think it's always fun to challenge that. Like, well, OK, what is what is really going on there? Why is that so good? And why is that so bad? And what's the other what's 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 the dark side of that mountain? And what's the light side of that mountain? Because there there is always one. I think it's one of the um, hermetic principles, actually. There's these seven hermetic principles that I like to refer back to. And one of them is around um, polarity, mm-hmm. that every everything does have its, have its poles. And I think it speaks to that bit as well, the, the, the shadow, the strength. And there's lots of different linguistics we can put around it. But yeah, I, I think it's a really powerful concept to keep in mind. So if you if you find yourself either really struggling with something or really excelling with something, check for the blind spot because there there will be one and yeah. and that's that's how you can really sort of supercharge your your strengths i think to to know to know what those blind spots are mm. i'd love to continue to explore this with you because it's on one hand we've named that empathy is looked at a lot of times as an outright gift and there are shadow components to it on the flip side 
my sensitivity is an example of something that I, I labeled as a bad quality, especially as someone who identifies as a man. And there are mm -hmm. actually a lot of gifts in sensitivity and being able to perceive and feel. And for example, I have a very tight feedback loop in my body when mul there's multiple scenarios. If the energy of a room feels off, if I'm eating really well, my body receives that and I am thriving. And conversely, if I eat too much cake or ice cream, my body has a very tight feedback loop there. And mm -hmm. I, I name all this in service of what are some, and especially because I know you work with men, what are some examples of qualities that men might think of as shadows that actually can be really powerfully harnessed strengths? Mm -hmm. Well, I'd really love to to dial in on the one that you've just presented there because I think it's a I think it's a beautiful example, and I I actually really appreciate that you label it as sensitivity rather than simply empathy, right? Because maybe empathy is an element of that sensitivity. Um, but I think that's something that's really really powerful, and it is something that's often felt to be sort of wrong. It's like you know, there's no way I could cry in the movie theater, you know, with, with this girl next to me when there's a sad scene on the movie. It's like, oh, hold it in, hold it, hold it, hold it. And then there's, then there's this, you know, emotional constipation that's got to come out later at some point. Um, but I, I think that's that's a perfect example. Um, I, I would like to offer a little bit of a reframe on it as well, because I, I think, again, linguistics is so important in this in this work. We we do build worlds with our words. And I would say that they're kind of, rather than sensitivity, it could be interesting to apply that label of instincts, mm. right? That those instincts are kind of finely tuned. Um, and so whether it's feeling into the energy of a room, sort of feeling instinctively what what the foods that are that are good and nourishing for your body are, you know as, as somebody trained in that area as well it's not the same thing for everyone mm -hmm. and being sensitive to what's going on and having these finely tuned instincts it really it is it is such a superpower um because it allows you to cut through some of the nonsense and if we look at that food example i mean you could be you could be vegan you could be paleo you could be a carnivore diet you know, raw foods you know the, the ketogenic there's so much out there and you could you could find some really great arguments for all of them and really great arguments against all of them. But by coming back to to yourself and tuning into your own instincts and your own sensitivities to things, it just it makes all of that almost irrelevant. It's like I just do what is good, what feels good for me. And and so I think that that's sort of part of the superpower of, of having those those finely tuned um, instincts and ability to kind of digest the world in that way. And I, I guess part of this, the dark side of that as well is sometimes it can feel like a lot, a lot to process. It's this busyness that's kind of there um, trying to work out what to do with all of this sensory information that can be quite exhausting. I'm not sure if that, is that something that you recognize for yourself as well? Well, what's coming up for me as, as we're discussing this right now is that there's a way in which I think the on-ramp to personal development, I'll, I'll speak to my own personal experience. I wanted someone to tell me what to do and the way in all capital letters to eat, 
to set up my morning routine, to process my emotions. There was going to be a certain way that I was in touch with my intuition. I just wanted someone to tell me what the answer was. So as an on-ramp into personal development, I followed a lot of people who were very dogmatic about the ketogenic diet, paleo diet. And so I, I really started to immerse myself in that world. And I was pretty convinced that that was the way to eat. And I started to find ways that supported the way that I wanted to live. And as then I opened, I, I guess, the next chapter after the initial on-ramp into personal development, I started to open more doors and see in the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, with regard to food, we talked about bio-individuality, that everyone has different, everyone's body has separate needs and there are common threads, there are models that are useful for the collective, but everyone has uh, separate needs. And that was very unsettling for me and very overwhelming. I, I, mm -hmm. was, I didn't believe that there were people that could be vegan and separate people that could be carnivore and separate people that ketogenic diet was the best. That, that was extremely unsettling and overwhelming for me. And at times it still is. It mm. feels like there's just too much going on in the world. How the hell are we supposed to make sense of all this? How are we supposed to figure out what works best for us? And conversely, there are times where that feels extraordinarily beautiful, that it's so wonderful that we have, we each are, while we all have similar core wants and needs, that we have different ways of expressing and there was even, it's funny, I, I don't think I've ever spoken about this out loud, but there was a point in my life that I was convinced every single person should, if not be a coach, be doing work that is that lights them the fuck up. And I'm actually not that convinced of that anymore. I think some people are really content just being providers for their family or living a, a really simple life and, and who don't have ambition or much of a drive to find deep meaning in their work. I think we all have different ways of expressing that. And so, yeah, I, I guess the reason I, I name that is because it, it can feel really overwhelming, but it's also part of the mystery and complexity and, and beauty of life is that we all are so different. And collectively, that's what makes humanity so special is that there's so many different ways of being and there's no right or wrong way. So mm -hmm. I, I guess, yeah, I, I, I don't know if I jumped a little bit all over the place, but it seems like it made sense to you. Like how, how did that land with you? Yeah, no, it, it does. It does. I, I love I love where you've gone with that because the kind of the, the thread that I see through what you've just shared is this idea of coming home, mm -hmm. of of really getting in touch with what's true for you. And I, I absolutely like you, I, I recognize this kind of drive, this desire to find like a, a fix, I'll call it like a solution for the problem. Um, and I think you know, that is a very sort of masculine way, not necessarily man, but masculine way of approaching a, a challenge right? Like problem, solution. And I, I did the same thing. I, I think I've tried every diet under the sun. I've done my fair share of detoxes, you know, all the things. <laughs> At one point I was even eating these little kind of fat bomb things for, for breakfast that were made out of all kinds of oh, fats and oils and spices and kick the metabolism into go, in, get it going. And yeah, I really, I really recognize that. 
And and I do do see it in my professional practice as well that it's more often that the men that have a, a challenge with this idea because the style of coaching I do is transformational coaching. So it means that in some sense there's a goal, but there's got to be a whole lot of trust in the process, you know, the emergence of what's going to come up. It's like, okay, yes, you want to feel less stressed. I'm not going to give you the the five-step guide to get less stressed because you know, if it was that simple, you would have already done it, you know, smart, the smart people sitting in front of me, if it was that simple, it would be done already. So that's, that's not really the answer. So I think that's, that's the hardest hurdle to get over is actually just letting go to this idea that there is a problem and a fix, mm-hmm. that it really is a matter of learning to trust and, and moving in and out. Um, you might call it sort of edging, like get, getting to getting a little bit into these sort of new fields and coming back to where it feels safe again and then going back out again. It's sort of, yeah, it really is, I think the best way to describe it, it's an emergent process. And it, it's it's what I see now Now that I'm working with people for a longer period of time. Uh, you know, it starts at that six-month mark with the people that I'm working with in my my private one-to-one coaching. It's, it's maybe after like three, four, five, sessions that things start to loosen up a bit and those possibilities really start to emerge uh, but it, it is such it is such a hard thing to to even contemplate mm-hmm. where because there's so, so many of us I think are are you know control freaks or recovering control freaks I definitely am mm-hmm. and and trying to make life fit into a, a nice pretty box that's uh, predictable and understandable you know it's like of course we want to do that because that feels safer, it feels better in our nervous systems. We we can anticipate what's coming, but you've kind of got to throw that out of the window when you've got to when you're going to make these really really truly transformational changes. If you want if you want a big a significant a significant kind of outcome, a significant shift from where you're at, you've you've got to do things differently, and and that's really tough to stomach. And when when everything in your life until now has been built on a system, on a structure, and whether it's you know preschool, this this formal education through school and university, everything is systemized and structured, and it's not not really a very good boot camp for real adult life when you look at it. It doesn't really prepare us for for all of the amb- ambiguity, all of the ways that life's going to pull it at us in. In, in the emotional context, in the physical context, the relational, you know, all, all these ways that we get moved. So it's, yeah, it's, it's almost like learning to dance. Yeah. I mm. would love to hear you expound on an example maybe of when that dance helped a client or yourself come to some sort of realization or to have the insight of, oh, life isn't full of certainty and and that's okay that i'm i'm going to be able to handle that uh mm-hmm. yeah what's what's an example and and you named that sometimes it takes a few sessions but what's a an example of the way that you're able to support clients to make that realization so that they're better resourced to handle the inherent mystery and uncertainty of life mm-hmm. yeah Beautiful question. Let me tap into what's most useful there. I I think the example that I give of of 
how men in particular relate to children is is super interesting because I find children are very, very good mirrors. And I, and I work with a number of men who are fathers in my practice. And it's it's just so, so fascinating to see how their relationships with their kids shift over time doing this work. And I never start with, oh, yeah, you've just got to learn to do everything differently and like stop being a control freak, just let go. Like you can't you can't start from there. But what's really important to do is to start to to challenge these these core beliefs. And there's a lot of stuff like, say, around productivity, around the role of the provider, as we touched on, and and really starting from that and understanding what it means on the on the personal level. Because if somebody's really um, got some strong beliefs around the importance of being productive for whatever reason, and genuinely, it, generally that ties back to a sense of adequacy. That was true for me and it's true for many of my clients. Like I, I have to, to, to be good enough or to even to be not bad, sometimes not enough and bad to me are sort of two sides of the same coin. There's just different expressions. That that not enoughness, that I, I'm not adequate, and and therefore to make sure that I still am okay and acceptable as a human being, I need to produce or I need to provide. So that that's a really, really common one that shows up. And I find starting to look at and and challenge those beliefs and and bring them to somewhere and kind of start with with the logical mind, sort of taking it out of the subconscious and with the logical mind going, you know, is is that is that true? And maybe sometimes it, it is, but probably sometimes it's not as well. So just starting to kind of loosen up the grip on some of these ideas and create a little bit of intentional space. You know, I have one client, for, for instance, that used to be the first first one in and last one out at the office, you know, every single day of the week. And one of the things that we put in place was that he uh, interrupts that at least once a week. And so he'll go and do something else in the morning, whether it's go for for breakfast or go and do some sort of sporting activity. But there's at least one one day of the week where there's this moment where he's just not showing up to the office. I mean, he's arranging his agenda around, uh, of course, not just not just skipping out on meetings, but really sending a message to himself that he does get to have that flexibility and that it's the world's not going to fall apart when when he's not there and so just these little practices and over time it evolves and and a certain amount of trust in the world is rebuilt because I think I think for for a large part that that's what it is it's like there's this there's this trust there's this trust structure built on I know that I can do good work I know that I can produce and so as long as I can keep producing then it's then it's okay but the trust with how the outside world responds in the absence of that productivity is what needs to be built. So does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So find, finding ways to kind of challenge that and to play with that um, I think is helpful. And, and naturally, again, going back to this idea of emergence, naturally life is going to start to present these opportunities to test those beliefs and it's going to present real opportunities where there is just no ability to take control of something. And that's why I mentioned kids as well, because kids are kids. You can you can you can put structure around them, and eventually you'll be able to kind of <laughs> get them to comply if you want. But I don't recommend it necessarily as a parenting approach. But 
they they're gonna they're gonna challenge you. There's gonna they're gonna be things that are show, that are showing up in a in a parent child relationship that you just can't anticipate and you can't control, and you have to let go. And there's there's certain things like that in life. Relationships are a big one as well. Yeah, it, it's quite often the case in personal development. If if one person is really sort of going deep, and the other person's maybe not so engaged, that there is a bit of shakiness in the relationship. Even it even um. Uh, I've supported some clients through a, a breakdown of those relationships. Um, so sometimes that can happen. Um, and that's a real test of letting go because as, uh, when you're talking about relationships, emotions, you can't, you can't control it. It's, you, you can't make another person do something. Well, not, not in a, a legal uh, way. Yeah. Right now. And in touch with, one of the ways that I attempt to control and it's been present for me since I was a young child is I, I definitely have that nice guy. I can get my needs met in a million different ways, energy. And it's a sneaky way to try and get control that if I behave perfectly, if I do the right thing, if if I don't ever make mistakes, it's there's a little bit of perfectionism in there that everything is going to work out for me the way that it's supposed to. And in the long term, that came at a cost of me not expressing when my needs weren't being met. If I felt anger, if I felt sad, I, I didn't want to, I had a fear that I there wasn't enough space for me to share and reveal what my experience was because their everyone else's experience mattered more. And I was highly convinced that wh wherever I could be, I'm adaptable. And I've actually been called, talk about strength and shadow. I've been called a chameleon in a lot of different contexts in my life, which I think can be a beautiful thing. But when it's done as a strategy of not sh sharing what's true to me, then energetically, I can get, I can drift and get very lost. So I just wanted to bring some color into how that's very present for me. And we all have different ways that that might resonate for some folks. It might not. We all have different ways that we might present ourselves that are a little bit compromised because we have an expectation that the rest of the group will, will respond a way that is rewarded or that we make up as positive. And one of the biggest parts of my journey has been this realization that I can state what feels true to me without it coming at the expense of another person, that there's an abundance that where we can all get our needs met. And it's not a, a scarcity game where if I'm saying that my needs are important and I want to have alone time, that doesn't come with at the scarcity of another person having some sort of connection needs met. Mm. And it's really, it's powerful work. It really, it shifts its, its relationships, but it also can change the way that we show up at work. It can change the way that we show up to life at large. And I, I just wanted to name that on my end and give a concrete example. Mm, mm. I, I really appreciate you bring that in actually Mike, because I think a lot of people have this perception of a control freak is somebody who's like really kind of outwardly controlling and sort of domineering and like it's my way or the highway kind of thing. 
but it's it's that's not really how it is. <laughs> As I said, I'm a, I'm a recovering control freak myself, and there's uh, some areas in my life that are a little more free than others. But I definitely rec- recognize the chameleon thing, and something really interesting that I heard recently was a quote from Brene Brown. It was was around the the most compassionate people are actually the most boundaried people. Mm -hmm. And I think this sort of chameleon uh, behavior in in a way, it's a symptom of, of not having these boundaries and not allowing ourselves to set our own sort of preferences. And it's like you said, that implication, if I have preferences, then it means somebody else's preferences are going to be compromised. There's this automatic defaulting and this hierarchy that, that shows up like the the subconscious thing is my needs are less important than the other person's and that that really struck me as as somebody who's also sort of proactively working on my own boundaries it's like wow there's actually a block to the level of compassion that I can hold be- because of this boundary thing that can show up and I think you know, for me, that's that's a big reason to really look at it a little more, bit more closely as well and, and see where that, because it is sneaky, see where that sneaky behavior is showing up. And as you said, it looks it looks really lovely on the outside. You know, the, Mike's the nice guy, Anne's the nice girl, you know, she's, she's a yes person, he's a yes person. And it can feel nice for a while until that resentment starts building up and even becomes frustration and anger and it's like, ah, you know, why is the world against me? It's like, well, <laughs> where shall we start? And, and you and I, are, I think, are, are very self-aware and we kind of know where it starts. We, we can see the patterns that are rolling out there and are, are quite a few evolutions around now uh, but it still it still tends to show up for me in different ways than it used to but it, it, it is quite sneaky I think maybe in some ways it would be easier if I was more you know the, the, the bigger sort of expression of the the control freak the more sort of overt version it's like oh yeah I see that now I now I know when it's there and not when it's not but this is this is a little bit more covert so yeah. it's an it's a challenging one to work with but definitely worth it definitely worth it well, the, the transformational coach in me wants to, to point out there is something awesome about every strategy that we have and every single tendency we have is there for really good reason. And, and sometimes it's just, it's limited in the present context. And a lot of what we do as coaches is help, whether it's ourselves or our clients or folks around mm-hmm. us, see when is this an appropriate behavior and, and when would you like to act differently and, and what agency would you like to have? But anyway, and we've been jamming for quite some time. Is there, before I move to more of the rapid fire type of questions, is there anything that we have not invited into the conversation that you would like to presence right now? Well, maybe, maybe just a cap off on, because we, we've been talking a lot about, about men and the focus on, on, on men sort of looking at some of these challenges with themselves. I think really just to, to remind men that they are, they're so welcome in this transformational space and, and so needed. And I think uh, what I at least witness out there in the world is that there are so many voices for women coming from both women and men that are trying to raise up women and, and, really kind of advocate for equality, which I think, you know, it's beautiful in its own right. But I'm also seeing that there's another group of of men who feel like their voices are no longer important. And and I just really want to affirm that that everyone's voices are important. 
and especially when we look to to men's mental health and you know three quarters of suicides in in most countries in the at least in the west are men so there is there is an issue here there's is a real there is a real issue here and that's that's why i chose to focus my my attention on the the men as well um and then there's these other ways that that men get taken out of life like my dad you know with his his suffering from cancer and I, I genuinely believe that his health wouldn't have degraded like it did if he had, if he cared for himself and he, if he cultivated strong, open, healthy, supportive relationships around him. Um, maybe he would have had a few, year, few more years in him. Maybe he'd still be around today. I, I don't know. Nobody could ever possibly know, but that's, that's what I would assert. And so I really just want to um, make that very kind of distinct as well, just to really invite men into this conversation and, you don't have to plunge into a six month transformational coaching journey right off the bat. Like if you want to, sure, that's fine. Happy to have a chat, but it, it can start with the smallest things, just sharing a little bit more of yourself, a little bit more of what you're experiencing, especially if you can find another man, a friend even, and, and just, just sort of test the waters because quite often it's, it's our own sharing that invites another man into, into the journey as well and makes them go, oh, okay, well, maybe it is okay for me to share. So really being that, that permission slip for other people. So wh where, wherever you start, I think just, just start. It could be a book, a podcast. You know, if you're here on Mike's Search for Meaning, you're obviously a little way along. But I, I, I just really just want to make it so clear that, that men are, are so welcome and actually so needed in, in this space. We, we need men who feel empowered. We need men who feel who feel peaceful, who feel like they do have access to to a range of, of possibilities in their lives. So um, yeah, that's I think that's the the important message that I want to bring across. Well, thanks for bringing it in, Anne. You're you're doing marvelous, marvelous work. And I, I always end my podcast by not always, but. I usually shower my guests with appreciation. So I'll save the rest of the gushiness for after these couple of questions. What's an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy? Uh, I I love going walking out in the in the parks here in Amsterdam and just yeah, seeing the way that nature is showing up in that day. Um I, I like this really my opportunity to slow down and and check in. What are it, it could be a way or it could be several ways. What are some ways that you're inviting some play and enjoy into your life? Mm. Well, I've actually just last week, a friend gave me a, a challenge. I haven't yet completed it, but I, I plan on doing it this week to um, swing on a swing again. Mm. I used to love the swings as a kid. And there's some some swings not too far from my house. Every time I've gone past so far, there's been been kids on the playground. I don't want to scare them away. It's good. Find it when it's not peak hour. <laughs> so that's one way. I'm gonna. I'm making a commitment to to swing on more swing sets. <laughs> Love that. If you could make a phone call in this alternate reality to twelve year old Anne and and tell her anything that she needed to hear, what would you want to tell twelve year old Anne? Mm, I'd want to tell her it's gonna be okay. Well, and before I ask my very final question, where would you invite folks to connect with you online or otherwise? Mm, the, the place I love to hang out most is on LinkedIn, actually. So 
yeah, I really invite anybody who's on that platform to to join in a conversation there. I have some some quite rich conversations on the feed. I show up kind of intermittently on Instagram, so it's not it's not really my my favorite playground that one. So yeah, LinkedIn. Um, happy for you to reach out to me directly there as well. Uh, you can also reach me via my website as well, which is just just my name www.anbendegeeson.com so it's pretty pretty easy to find Mm -hmm. i'll link to all that of course in the show notes i also recommend Anne's newsletter which you can subscribe to from her website and actually Anne, before i ask my final question i i can't believe i didn't pick your brain on this i would love for you to just name a couple of books that whether it's you've gifted to folks the most or that have helped shape your worldview the most? What are just a couple of books that you have found transformational? Mm, well, to to direct this at my my male uh, listeners, but but also female listeners for, for an interesting perspective, really my, my favorite book is Iron John, a book about men. It's it's a, a beautiful exploration of, of myth and story as it relates to um, men's rites of passage through life. It's yeah, it's, it's just such a wonderful book. It's very sort of poetically compiled. So there's, it's not just sort of a straight read, but I, I just adore it. And, and I've, I've heard the same from many other men who have, who have felt very seen in reading that as well. So I definitely recommend picking up that one. Um, in terms of another one, I'm going to go, I'm going to go fiction because I don't read much fiction and I really liked this book. Um, Pillars of the Earth by Ken Follett was a really nice read. It's quite a thick read. That's a lot to it. But I, I think sometimes amongst all the personal development stuff, it can be interesting to pick up something different. So yeah, Ken Follett is uh, an incredible author. He does a lot of research before he writes. So so this particular book is, is about one of the old cathedral builders back in the 1300s or something that it's set very long time ago and it explores life in that era so it's it's a little brutal in in stages but but I I loved reading the book it just it's a nice one to get lost in awesome and do you remember by chance the author of Iron John uh Robert Bly yeah 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 he's he's a poet actually so he's he's very poetic in style Mm mm-hmm Cool. Well, I will link to those additionally in the show notes as well. And you know that this one's coming as well, just like you knew the first question was coming. The final question that I ask every guest is, what does it mean to you, to Anne, to live a meaningful life? Yeah, I didn't I didn't really plan for this one. <laughs> what does it mean to live a, a meaningful life? I, I think it kind of circles back to where we started with being as real as you can and there's going to be aspects of your psyche that are going to show up and and make it hard for you to be real in in certain parts of life but I I think for me just working to be more and more myself every day and and inviting the same in other people really creating that safe space so that they can they can be themselves as well in in my presence and 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 fostering that that deeper more authentic connection in relationships I I really think that's a huge huge component of human health is is the health of our relationships well and uh, here comes the appreciation thank you for 
jamming with me for this extra long form conversation. It's always a treat to jam with you. It was really fun to jam in this new space where we had, you know, almost two hours together, really exploring the depths of you and the work you do. And there are so many parts of your story and your work that resonate with me. And I hope that I'm not overstepping when I say your father must be so proud of the work that you're doing and the person that you are. And I know that all of the men and women who get to experience your work and who work with you one-on-one -on -one are really touched by the, the blessing of being able to be in your presence. And I certainly would bucket myself in that same group. I reached out to you on LinkedIn a year, about a year ago, and had I just had talk about instinct. I had an instinct that we would have some sort of good connection. And it's been a very fruitful one for me. And I, I trust that it's been the same for you. And so I just wanted to share all of that appreciation that you're, you're a wonderful person and you're doing amazing work. And thank you for all the ways that you continue to show up to life. Thank you so much, Mike. And I, I am so glad that you reached out on LinkedIn that day as well, almost a year ago, I think. Um, it's It's been so, so wonderful connecting and, you know, just, just growing together and, and sharing our work and, and our passions. And thank you for inviting me into this space as well. Um, you're, you're a beautiful host and it's it's felt very healing and very meaningful for me to share my story. Um I, I think a part of my dad would probably be a little bit cringing and feeling a little vulnerable <laughs> being the proud man that he was. But, you know, I think I think his higher self would would know that his story is really in service of, of the evolution of, of all men, maybe even all people. The importance of, of really, really being honest with yourself and, and taking care of yourself. It's it's, you know, the, the old thing about putting your own oxygen mask on first. Yeah, he's so he he is a guide for for me and my work. Um, he's definitely here with me as far as I can perceive. Um, so I, I really appreciate that that comment and that reflection. And, um, yeah, th thank you again for for having me here. My absolute pleasure, and to all the listeners, whenever you are listening, I hope that you have a great rest of your day or evening. I hope that you reach out for the support if you need it. I hope that you realize that you are enough and take good care. Lots of love. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.